and we'll be walking through a few different passages today. So just have your Bibles open there to Genesis chapter 2, and I'll direct you as we move around. Uh, The question I'm thinking about this morning is if you want to tell somebody about your life, uh, where would you begin? Somebody walks up to you and says, well, tell me about yourself. I mean, where, where do you start? What's the best place to begin your discussion? How far do you go back? If you're a writer and a biographer and you want to write about somebody famous in history, where do you start your discussion on their life? Um, I've been recently reading through a book on uh, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And here's the very first chapter and the very first paragraph of this first chapter. The biographer writes, The rich world of his ancestors set the standard for Dietrich Bonhoeffer's own life. It gave him a certainty of judgment and a manner that cannot be acquired in a single generation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor in a German church, arrested and killed under Hitler's regime. The biographer says, The rich world of Bonhoeffer's ancestors set the standard for his own life. It gave him a certainty of judgment and manner that cannot be acquired in a single generation. In other words, when you come to Bonhoeffer's life, there's a certain uh, ancestral momentum that happens. And so when the biographer says, I'd like to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he can't just start with the birth of Bonhoeffer because there's so many things loaded into Bonhoeffer at his birth that the biographer understandably says, I need to go back and I need to try to fill in some of this momentum. So when we get to this person's life, you understand the the rich history that he comes out of. You understand the history of the German people. So when we get to his birth, you're already running pretty much at full speed as you enter into Bonhoeffer's first few days. Today we mark the Advent season, the coming of Christ, and we tell or retell the story of Jesus. And I have the same question. If you're talking about Jesus, if you're telling somebody the story of Jesus, where do you begin? What's the best starting point when somebody says, hey, tell me about Jesus? Where do you start? Do you start in Luke chapter 2, which is the familiar passage? Joseph went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. If you were Jesus' biographer, is that where you would start? If somebody says, hey, tell me about Jesus, would you go to Luke chapter 2 and say, well, let me just start with his birth? Or is there a kind of ancestral momentum? Is there something that's building to Luke chapter 2 that it's helpful for you to say, let me give you the back story. So when we get to to Jesus' appearance, we're already running at full steam. And the answer is, obviously, you'd need to go backwards. 
it's interesting that if you looked at Luke chapter 24 and Jesus got a chance to give his own biography. He is, is, he is giving an autobiography. And when he gives his own biography, he doesn't start in Luke chapter 2. When his disciples on the road to Emmaus don't understand who he is, he doesn't say, well, remember how I was born? That's not where he starts his own discussion about his own life. He goes back and he tells these two disciples on the road to Emmaus who just don't understand what this whole thing has happened about Jesus. They say, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but yet he's died on a cross when Jesus looks at these disciples and says, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe that that slow of heart to believe that all the prophets what all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with so where beginning with where he's gonna start, he's gonna launch into this discussion as they walk along the road, he's gonna begin somewhere and say, Well, let me tell you about myself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. It's the way to say, beginning with Genesis and going to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Beginning with the first page of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and going to the last page, he explained everything that was about himself in those books. There was all this kind of, all this momentum leading into the birth of Christ. Edmund Clowney an excellent biblical scholar, says this, The story of Jesus begins with the story of mankind. To follow the story of Jesus, we must begin with the very first page of the Bible. And so that's my goal for this Advent season, is to try to look at this momentum that's coming as we come to the birth of Christ, to, to take some points and plot them on the, the graph paper of human history, so to speak, so that when we go all the way back to the very first part and we begin to put the points together, all of these points are leading to the same conclusion, and that's Christ coming into the world. Now, this is going to be a little complicated at times because you're going to have to hear a big story in just a few moments. So you're going to have to be a good listener today. You're going to have to lean forward. You're going to flip through your Bibles and just sort of follow along. If I was a good teacher, I'd probably stop at the halfway point and say, let's just review this point. But we don't have enough time for that. So you just have to keep leaning in and trying to take up what you can, you can grab today. I don't know where Jesus started when he said, starting with Moses and all the prophets. He obviously started somewhere in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. But my guess is that he might have started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And Genesis 3, 15, God is speaking to the serpent. The fall of mankind has already happened. And God is now speaking to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if you want to impress somebody around your table later on today or tomorrow when you get to work, I want to put an impressive theological word into your vocabulary. It's proto Evangelum. Proto-evangelum. So you just whip that out. Yeah, that's the proto-evangelum. Whoa! 
And it's a pretty fancy word. It's not one you hear, but the but it means first gospel. And this is called the proto-evangelism. When you go back and you say, where is the gospel in the Old Testament? Well, you could, you could, you could think about the gospel being a lot of places in the Old Testament. The good news is the gospel. And the very first place theologians say the good news was announced is in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3 records the fall of mankind and the entrance of evil into the world. And when the first couple fell for the oldest, what is now the oldest trick in the book, they questioned God's word, they questioned, God, they questioned God's goodness, they, they, liked, they wanted to become like God, Adam and Eve, and all of mankind fell. That's the biblical worldview. When Adam and Eve fell, everything fell behind them. All of creation, all of humanity. So when you think of disease or you think of storms or any kind of evil, it came into the world at that particular point. But God, instead of destroying his creation in an act of judgment, which would have been right for him to do, when you, when you read about the fall of mankind, you're, you're caught off guard by what God does. It may be familiar to us, but here he set up his creation in a certain way and the, create, the, 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 the people at the very top, Adam and Eve, decided, you know what, I'd just rather be like God. And instead of pronouncing a judgment that they would just die immediately and maybe God would start over, God does something very surprising. He comes... He takes the initiative to find the very first lost sheep, Adam and Eve, who are hiding from God. And Genesis 3.15 records for us the very first time God reveals something about his plan of redemption. We, we learn from this verse that, that another offspring uh, from the woman is going to come. And it's the seed or the offspring of the woman. And just in that, you can just hear the little hint of the virgin birth. It's going to be the seed of the woman. It's going to be this unique offspring is going to come. And what this offspring is going to do is he's going to crush Satan. He's going to restore our relationship to God. But in the crushing, the offspring himself will be bruised. However, the offspring comes... And however this crushing comes of evil, what we know is it's going to come at a price. And the price is that the offspring himself is going to be bruised. You hear the words of Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So you see the same thing flowing all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And we can see this shadow that God is going to provide a way of salvation for mankind. And it's going to be fulfilled through the birth of a child. And that child is going to crush Satan and crush evil, but in the process, he himself is going to be crushed. But that 
child will be able to trace his history all the way through the Old Testament back to Adam and Eve. Now turn with me just briefly to Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Christ. Luke, the great historian, is trying to help you understand that trajectory. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. And then we start this long genealogy. So he is coming from Joseph and Joseph and Mary. Verse 31, the son of Malaya, the son of Menah, the son of Mathara, the son of Nathan, and the son of David. That's what we sung today, the son of David in the, in the Advent song. Verse 34, he is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And then finally in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So this is the offspring. That's why Luke picks this up. There's somebody that's going to be born, and this somebody is going to be a very special person. He's going to be the offspring, and he's going to have the power to crush Satan. But in the crushing, he himself is, he is going to be pierced. And he's going to come in some way out of Adam and Eve. So this person is fully God and fully man, as we know in the person of Christ. Now that's a lot of information, but I'm just trying to set the stage so when we get to Abraham, we understand there's a momentum being built. And if I were a good teacher instead of a preacher, I'd just stop right here and say, let's try to review and go over. But this is where you're going to have to lean forward and we're going to keep moving. I haven't even gotten to my text yet. And you're like, oh my goodness. So let's keep moving forward. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. So you're going to need to go back just a few chapters here. Genesis chapter 12. This is the call of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go or leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, or to your seed, I will give this land. To your offspring, or to your seed, I will give this land. So we see this call to, to leave. And it's a narrowing. Notice the narrowing. First of all, I want, to leave, I want you, Abraham, to leave your country. You're going to have to leave your geography. You're going to have to leave your people. You're going to have to leave your ethnicity behind. So you're going to have to move geographically to a different location, and you're going to have to take on a new ethnicity. But then it even narrows further. What does it say? You've got you to leave your family. It's not, it's not just a geography. It's just not your ethnicity. You've got to leave your father's house. And this narrowing call comes and Abraham follows. And then these great promises. He's going to make you into a great nation. He's going to make your name great. The, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. 
if you know Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, all the things man was trying to do on their own. I want to be a great nation. I want people to know who I am. I want people to be blessed through my being here. God completely destroys and then he, he rebuilds in one conversation in chapter 12 with Abraham. A special child is promised to Abraham, an offspring. And this child will play a part in bringing God's people into a new land. Genesis 18, several years later. Turn with me to chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Abraham and Sarah, who had been married for a number of years, started getting discouraged that God hadn't provided a son And so God came down and talked to Abraham and Sarah. Chapter 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. It's just kind of funny. Just, you know, the men are in there having a deep discussion. And the woman's just, hey, I need to make sure I understand what's going on. And a promise is given to Abraham. Hey, your wife is going to have a son or a child next year. Verse 11, and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, probably 190. 100 for Abraham and 90 for Sarah. The way of the woman had, the, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure, the pleasure of having a child? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child that I am old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? When an angel came to Mary, says, you will give birth to a son. And she says, how is it possible I'm a virgin? What does the angel say? Is anything impossible for God? It's the same, it's the same echo You're meant to see that echo coming out in the New Testament. And so nothing is impossible for God. And surely we're not surprised when we turn to chapter 21, verse 1, the birth of Isaac. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. No surprise. The Lord makes a promise. He keeps his promises. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which means he laughs or laughter. So you can just see the the joy coming out here. I can't believe it, man. I was laughing and I can't believe now I have this son. Let's just call him laughter because every time we say his name, we'll just remember how ridiculous it is that we at, at such an old age, we have a son. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, not laughing at that point, I'm guessing. When he was eight days old, as God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child? Yet I have born to him a son in his old age. 
And so this is the promised seed. This is the, the joy, all this momentum. It's coming out of Genesis chapter 3, 15. There's a, a special child that's going to be born. And this child is going to be born. And there's going to be a certain lineage for this child. And this child is eventually going to bring forth another child, Jesus Christ who will lead His people into this new promised land. So there's this lineage that's happening. And here we are in Genesis chapter 21, and we're just celebrating. Imagine just reading through the Bible for the very first time. And you, just, you get to chapter 21, you're like, wow, it's incredible. Amazing. You're just laughing as you read the author's story. How is this possible? A hundred-year-old and a ninety-year-old couple have a child. And yet, when you turn just a few verses later in chapter 22, everything unravels in one sentence. It's like you're just going along. You're like, it's incredible. Wow. Amazing. Hey, there's a child. Wow. And then you just go off the cliff. That you're just not at all prepared. You're laughing in one chapter and then you come to chapter 22 and all this laughter unravels. Abraham, oh, it's another call. I wonder what exciting journey God has for Abraham. Imagine being Abraham. Hey, this is the same voice that's been calling out to me. Abraham, oh, here I am. Take your son. Awesome. Where are we going? To put him to death. I mean, just emotionally just fall straight down. If you were just reading this for the first time, and you were seeking after God in some way, thinking, hey, maybe this is the answer. I, I hear this from so many people, and so I'm reading this Bible. If you just got to this verse and said, hey, you know what? I can't go any further. I, I wouldn't be surprised. If you just said, you know what, I've got to put this down. All this joy, all this momentum, all this promise to Abraham, and now he's being called to take this journey. And you, you, see, you don't quite see it here, but it's the same narrowing effect Take your son, this, this, okay, your son, and then it's the son you love, okay, it's Isaac. Same thing in Genesis chapter 12. Take, take your son, the son you love, Isaac. He's narrowing down this call. He's getting right at the heart of Abraham and his identity. And it's a shocking verse. It's meant to stop you in your tracks. Before we think about that, I want to ask this question to those who would say, I'm a person who's been called by God. If you're here this morning and you'd say, I, I think I'm a person who's been called by God. When you read this, do you fully appreciate what it costs to be someone called by God? 
I thought about that, and my first thought was, well, God's call for Abraham must be different than my God's call for me. I mean, as soon as I hear it, what am I thinking? It's got to be, you know, can't be me, got to be different. So, so is Jesus' call for me different than God's call for Abraham? Answer, no. Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What are crosses for? Jewelry? Church decoration? If you lived in the first century, that wasn't what a cross was for. Cross was for putting things to death. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is famously quoted as saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Rick Warren, a purpose-driven life, says this, in our church, we move people from come, come and see to come and die. See, Abraham's call from God, Jesus' call to his disciples, God's call for us is the same. It's not something vague. It narrows down into where you get your identity. And if he's called you, he's called you to let go of everything you think is valuable in this world to follow the one thing of great value. And so my question again is, have you heard this call? See, you could have been in your ch- in church all your life and heard a general call. God loves you. you know, he's the way to get to heaven. Just come and see. That might be the beginning. But it narrows down. And so if you're saying, I've been called by God, have you heard this call? That you're going to have to let go of everything that's valuable in this world in order to really follow after Christ. Well, Abraham shows us his, really, what is bewildering faith. And he takes Isaac, his son, on this three-day journey. I just can't imagine how long this journey must have seemed. And they come to a land called, or an area called Moriah which if you read Second Chronicles 3 is the same area of Jerusalem. It's where the temple is going to be established by Solomon. And then I asked myself, well, how is Abraham able to respond to this kind of call? What, what gives him the faith to move forward even though it seems totally bewildering? I mean, when God is operating in your life in a way that's just completely nonsensical, it's just absolutely bewildering, and you have a sense that He still wants you to move forward, how do you still move forward in that situation? That's what I want to ask Abraham. And the Hebrew writer tells us this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance... He obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. How do you move forward when you don't know where you're going? Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Abraham was looking forward to a city 
whose architect and builder was God. In other words, Abraham's foundation didn't lay in this world. He wasn't firmly planted in this world. And so if everything in this world sort of dissolved, if everything washed out with the tide for Abraham, he could still stay standing because his foundation wasn't fundamentally in this world. It was in the world to come. And so how do you and I stand in a world that seems bewildering as we have our foundation embedded in another land? Now, I'm guessing there are people here, I'm sure of it, that they're, they're living their lives or they can remember when they lived their lives like jumping from one sandbar to another on a rising tide. You've ever been out there at Wrightsville Beach and it's dead low tide and you get to one sandbar and it's pretty high, but you can see tide's coming up. So you take your boat or you walk across while it's still shallow and you get to another sandbar, but it doesn't take long, the tide's coming up. Pretty soon, you run out of space. And the foundation washes out from underneath you and you can't stay there if you're going to stay alive. You've got to get your foundation on something that the tide just can't reach. And many of us have lived our lives in this way, jumping from one high spot in the world to another. Jumping from one person to another, one dream to another, one addiction to another, one career to another, one shopping spree to another, one car to another. But they don't last because the tide is rising and all those things will eventually wash away. And if you've been living in that place and you say, yeah, that's me, then you're hearing the call of God right now. You know where you are. You're just on a high spot. And yeah, it feels good right now, but you know it's going to wash away. And God's calling to you just as clearly as He's calling to Abraham, come and follow me. Let me put your foundation in a place that no matter what happens in this world, you can still stand. You can see two places here in the text that Abraham trusts God that somehow, even though it's bewildering, it's going to come out all right. Verse 5, he says to his servant, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And in the Hebrew, we will worship and then we will come back. And then in this excruciating exchange, which is really slowed down in the text between Isaac and Abraham, Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. And if you read past verse 2, you see that God does provide. And there's a huge relief, but at the same time, you have to say you're left with a lot of questions. I think it's reasonable to say this seems monstrous. I mean, it's a test, and the reader knows it's a test, but poor Abraham, he doesn't know it's a test. I mean, it's one thing if God said, hey, this is going to be a test, going to work out all fine, but, you know, here, let's do, okay. If it's going to work out fine, okay. We know that, but Abraham doesn't know it. 
And it seems like he gets excruciating close, close to executing his own son. And I'm reading this text and I'm saying, what's the point? And I think there are a lot of answers that might be given. But here's the answer that I think is maybe most helpful. The, the horror of this act of father killing a son is meant to shock you into seeing the depths of your own depravity. You see, most of us, when we think about our sin, we think, ah, that's, that's not good. That's a bummer. I'll work on that next week. I'm already setting my resolutions, but, you know, between now and then, I'm just blow it. But that's, you know, God forgives. It's all right. It's not. It's not. It's shocking. Your, your sin, my sin, is shocking. It's monstrous. It's costly. And see, yet we don't see it, but when we see this somehow, it just boils inside of us. How can this be that a father would have to kill his own son? And of course, that's where we see Christ, is it not? 2,000 years later, later, after Abraham and Isaac, the offspring of another woman is born. He's not just any son. He's the Son of God. Paul makes reference to him in Corinthians as the second Adam or the last Adam. 33 years into his life, he's asked to make a journey to the area of Moriah, where Jerusalem is. His own father would lay him on top of some wood. And the son would cry out, Is there any other way? And there wasn't another way. He was the lamb. He was the lamb of God who was slain for your sin and mine. And it's monstrous. And it's gracious at the same time. God made Christ who never sinned to be a sin offering so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The good news is that God takes the initiative He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He provides a lamb. And in Jerusalem, this place is the place called the Lord will provide. And what did he provide? He provided his own son. Do you see the option? When you meet Christ, somebody has to pay for your sin. And either you... The son of Adam are going to pay or him, the son of God. Those are the two choices. When you try to describe the person of Jesus Christ, you have to start on the very first page. 
when John sees Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody there understood the momentum of that statement was this was the Lamb that God was going to provide. This is Him. He's the one. He has come. And He is calling He's calling you right now. Will you come and follow me? Would you finally let go of the sandbar in your life? The tide is rising. It is not going to bring you all the way home. Only I can do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this, this passage is, is the second most disturbing passage to me in the whole Bible. The most disturbing is the crucifixion, where the eternal Son of God cried out to His Father, Is there any other way? Where are you? And you turned away. And He paid the price for our sin. The offspring was born. He came into the world. He crushed evil. And was by, him, by that process crushed Himself so that we wouldn't be crushed so that we could have life now we live in a world that just fogs up our mind from that reality but I'm praying for myself I'm praying for my family I'm praying for this family that as we walk through the same journey that you walked through, through with your disciples on the road to Emmaus, that we would see, we could see these shadows of you coming to, into our lives so we could be more certain, more committed, willing to let go of the things in this world and to be called by God himself to come and follow Lord, we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.